A Princess of Mars, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 15 Sola tells me her story when consciousness returned, and, as I soon learned, I was down but a moment, I sprang quickly to my feet searching for my sword, and there I found it, buried to the hilt in the green breast of Z.A.D., who lay stone dead upon the ochre moss of the ancient sea bottom. As I regained my full senses I found his weapon piercing my left breast, but only through the flesh and muscles which cover my ribs, entering near the center of my chest and coming out below the shoulder. As I had lunged I had turned so that his sword merely passed beneath the muscles, inflicting a painful but not dangerous wound. Removing the blade from my body I also regained my own and turning my back upon his ugly carcass, I moved, sick, sore, and disgusted, toward the chariots which bore my retinue and my belongings. A murmur of Martian applause greeted me, but I cared not for it. Bleeding and weak I reached my women, who, accustomed to such happenings, dressed my wounds, applying the wonderful healing and remedial agents which make only the most instantaneous of death blows fatal. Give a Martian woman a chance and death must take a back seat. They soon had me patched up so that, except for weakness from loss of blood and a little soreness around the wound, I suffered no great distress from this thrust which, under earthly treatment, undoubtedly would have put me flat on my back for days. As soon as they were through with me I hastened to the chariot of Deja Torres, where I found my poor Sola with her chest swathed in bandages, but apparently little the worse for her encounter with Sarkaja, whose dagger it seemed had struck the edge of one of Sola's metal breast ornaments and, thus deflected, had inflicted but a slight flesh wound. As I approached I found Deja Torres lying prone upon her silks and furs, her lithe form racked with sobs. She did not notice my presence, nor did she hear me speaking with Sola, who was standing a short distance from the vehicle. Is she injured I asked of Sola, indicating Deja Torres by an inclination of my head. No, she answered, she thinks that you are dead. And that her grandmother's cat may now have no one to polish its teeth I queried, smiling. I think you wrong her. John Carter, said Sola. I do not understand either her ways or yours, but I am sure the granddaughter of ten thousand Jeddaks would never grieve like this over any who held but the highest claim upon her affections. They are a proud race, but they are just, as are all Barsoomians, and you must have hurt or wronged her grievously that she will not admit your existence living, though she mourns you dead. Tears are a strange sight upon Basum, she continued, and so it is difficult for me to interpret them. I have seen but two people weep in all my life, other than Deja Torres. One wept from sorrow, the other from baffled rage. The first was my mother, years ago before they killed her. The other was Sarkaja, when they dragged her from me today. Your mother, I exclaimed, but, Sola, you could not have known your mother, child. But I did. And my father also, she added. If you would like to hear the strange and Yuan Barsoomian story come to the chariot tonight, John Carter, 
and I will tell you that of which I have never spoken in all my life before. And now the signal has been given to resume the march, you must go. I will come tonight, Sola, I promised. Be sure to tell Deja Torres I am alive and well. I shall not force myself upon her, and be sure that you do not let her know I saw her tears. If she would speak with me I but await her command. Sola mounted the chariot, which was swinging into its place in line, and I hastened to my waiting thought and galloped to my station beside Tars Tarkas at the rear of the column. We made a most imposing and awe-inspiring spectacle as we strung out across the yellow landscape. The 250 ornate and brightly colored chariots, preceded by an advance guard of some 200 mounted warriors and chieftains riding five abreast and 100 yards apart, and followed by a like number in the same formation, with a score or more of flankers on either side. The 50 extra mastodons, or heavy draft animals, known as Zetidas, and the five or six hundred extra thoughts of the warriors running loose within the hollow square formed by the surrounding warriors. The gleaming metal and jewels of the gorgeous ornaments of the men and women, duplicated in the trappings of the Zetidas and thoughts, and interspersed with the flashing colors of magnificent silks and furs and feathers, lent a barbaric splendor to the caravan which would have turned an East Indian potentate green with envy. The enormous broad tires of the chariots and the padded feet of the animals brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea bottom. And so we moved in utter silence, like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by the guttural growling of a goaded zetidar, or the squealing of fighting thoughts. The green Martians converse but little, and then usually in monosyllables, low and like the faint rumbling of distant thunder. We traversed a trackless waste of moss which, bending to the pressure of broad tire or padded foot, rose up again behind us, leaving no sign that we had passed. We might indeed have been the wraiths of the departed dead upon the dead sea of that dying planet for all the sound or sign we made in passing. It was the first march of a large body of men and animals I had ever witnessed which raised no dust and left no spore, for there is no dust upon Mars except in the cultivated districts during the winter months, and even then the absence of high winds renders it almost unnoticeable. We camped at night at the foot of the hills we had been approaching for two days and which marked the southern boundary of this particular sea. Our animals had been two days without drink, nor had they had water for nearly two months, not since shortly after leaving Thark. But, as Tars Tarkas explained to me, they require but little and can live almost indefinitely upon the moss which covers Barsoom, and which, he told me, holds in its tiny stems sufficient moisture to meet the limited demands of the animals. After partaking of my evening meal of cheese-like food and vegetable milk I sought out Solar, whom I found working by the light of a torch upon some of Tars Tarkas' trappings. She looked up at my approach, her face lighting with pleasure and with welcome. I am glad you came, she said. Deja Torres sleeps and I am lonely. Mine own people do not care for me, John Carter. I am too unlike them. It is a sad fate, 
since I must live my life amongst them, and I often wish that I were a true green Martian woman, without love and without hope. But I have known love and so I am lost. I promised to tell you my story, or rather the story of my parents. From what I have learned of you and the ways of your people I am sure that the tale will not seem strange to you, but among green Martians it has no parallel within the memory of the oldest living Thark, nor do our legends hold many similar tales. My mother was rather small, in fact too small to be allowed the responsibilities of maternity, as our chieftains breed principally for size. She was also less cold and cruel than most green Martian women, and caring little for their society, she often roamed the deserted avenues of Thark alone, or went and sat among the wild flowers that decked the nearby hills, thinking thoughts and wishing wishes which I believe I alone among Tharkian women today may understand, for am I not the child of my mother and there among the hills she met a young warrior whose duty it was to guard the feelings of tiders and thoughts and see that they roamed not beyond the hills. They spoke at first only of such things as interest a community of Tharks, but gradually, as they came to meet more often, and, as was now quite evident to both, no longer by chance, they talked about themselves, their likes, their ambitions and their hopes. She trusted him and told him of the awful repugnance she felt for the cruelties of their kind, for the hideous, loveless lives they must ever lead, and then she waited for the storm of denunciation to break from his cold, hard lips. But instead he took her in his arms and kissed her. They kept their love a secret for six long years. She, my mother, was of the retinue of the great Talhages, while her lover was a simple warrior wearing only his own metal. Had their defection from the traditions of the Tharks been discovered both would have paid the penalty in the great arena before Talhages and the assembled hordes. The egg from which I came was hidden beneath the great glass vessel upon the highest and most inaccessible of the partially ruined towers of ancient Thark. Once each year my mother visited it for the five long years it lay there in the process of incubation. She dared not come oftener, for in the mighty guilt of her conscience she feared that her every move was watched. During this period my father gained great distinction as a warrior and had taken the metal from several chieftains. His love for my mother had never diminished, and his own ambition in life was to reach a point where he might wrest the metal from Talhages himself, and thus, as ruler of the Tharks, be free to claim her as his own as well as, by the might of his power, protect the child which otherwise would be quickly dispatched should the truth become known. It was a wild dream, that of wresting the metal from Talhages in five short years, but his advance was rapid, and he soon stood high in the councils of Thark. But one day the chance was lost forever, in so far as it could come in time to save his loved ones for he was ordered away upon a long expedition to the ice-clad south, to make war upon the natives there and despoil them of their furs, for such is the manner of the green Barsumian. He does not labor for what he can wrest him battle from others. He was gone for four years, and when he returned all had been over for three. For about a year after his departure, 
and shortly before the time for the return of an expedition which had gone forth to fetch the fruits of a community incubator, the egg had hatched. Thereafter my mother continued to keep me in the old tower, visiting me nightly and lavishing upon me the love the community life would have robbed us both of. She hoped, upon the return of the expedition from the incubator, to mix me with the other young assigned to the quarters of Talhages, and thus escape the fate which would surely follow discovery of her sin against the ancient traditions of the green men. She taught me rapidly the language and customs of my kind, and one night she told me the story I have told to you up to this point, impressing upon me the necessity for absolute secrecy and the great caution I must exercise after she had placed me with the other young Tharks to permit no one to guess that I was further advanced in education than they, nor by any sign to divulge in the presence of others my affection for her, or my knowledge of my parentage and then drawing me close to her she whispered in my ear the name of my father. And then a light flashed out upon the darkness of the tower chamber, and there stood Sarkaja, her gleaming, baleful eyes fixed in a frenzy of loathing and contempt upon my mother. The torrent of hatred and abuse she poured out upon her turned my young heart cold in terror. That she had heard the entire story was apparent, and that she had suspected something wrong from my mother's long nightly absences from her quarters accounted for her presence there on that fateful night. One thing she had not heard, nor did she know, the whispered name of my father. This was apparent from her repeated demands upon my mother to disclose the name of her partner in sin, but no amount of abuse or threats could wring this from her, and to save me from needless torture she lied for she told Sarkaja that she alone knew nor would she even tell her child. With final imprecations, Sarkaja hastened away to Talhages to report her discovery, and while she was gone my mother, wrapping me in the silks and furs of her night coverings, so that I was scarcely noticeable, descended to the streets and ran wildly away toward the outskirts of the city, in the direction which led to the far south out toward the man whose protection she might not claim, but on whose face she wished to look once more before she died. As we neared the city's southern extremity a sound came to us from across the mossy flat, from the direction of the only pass through the hills which led to the gates, the pass by which caravans from either north or south or east or west would enter the city. The sounds we heard were the squealing of thoats and the grumbling of zetiders, with the occasional clank of arms which announced the approach of a body of warriors. The thought uppermost in her mind was that it was my father returned from his expedition, but the cunning of the Thark held her from headlong and precipitate flight to greet him. Retreating into the shadows of a doorway she awaited the coming of the cavalcade which shortly entered the avenue breaking its formation and thronging the thoroughfare from wall to wall. As the head of the procession passed us the lesser moon swung clear of the overhanging roofs and lit up the scene with all the brilliancy of her wondrous light. My mother shrank further back into the friendly shadows, and from her hiding place saw that the expedition was not that of my father, but the returning caravan bearing the young Tharks. Instantly her plan was formed, 
and as a great chariot swung close to our hiding place she slipped stealthily in upon the trailing tailboard, crouching low in the shadow of the high side, straining me to her bosom in a frenzy of love. She knew, what I did not, that never again after that night would she hold me to her breast, nor was it likely we would ever look upon each other's face again. In the confusion of the plaza she mixed me with the other children, whose guardians during the journey were now free to relinquish their responsibility. We were herded together into a great room, fed by women who had not accompanied the expedition, and the next day we were parceled out among the retinues of the chieftains. I never saw my mother after that night. She was imprisoned by Talhages, and every effort, including the most horrible and shameful torture, was brought to bear upon her to wring from her lips the name of my father. But she remained steadfast and loyal, dying at last amidst the laughter of Talhages and his chieftains during some awful torture she was undergoing. I learned afterwards that she told them that she had killed me to save me from a like fate at their hands, and that she had thrown my body to the white apes. Sarkadja alone disbelieved her and I feel to this day that she suspects my true origin, but does not dare expose me, at the present, at all events, because she also guesses, I am sure, the identity of my father. When he returned from his expedition and learned the story of my mother's fate I was present as Talhages told him, but never by the quiver of a muscle did he betray the slightest emotion, only he did not laugh as Talhages gleefully described her death struggles. From that moment on he was the cruelest of the cruel, and I am awaiting the day when he shall win the goal of his ambition, and feel the carcass of Talhages beneath his foot, for I am as sure that Hubert waits the opportunity to wreak a terrible vengeance, and that his great love is as strong in his breast as when it first transfigured him nearly forty years ago as I am that we sit here upon the edge of the world old ocean while sensible people sleep, John Carter. And your father, Solar, is he with us now I asked? Yes, she replied, but he does not know me for what I am, nor does he know who betrayed my mother to Talhages. I alone know my father's name, and only I and Talhages and Sarkadja know that it was she who carried the tale that brought death and torture upon her he loved. We sat silent for a few moments, she wrapped in the gloomy thoughts of her terrible past, and I in pity for the poor creatures whom the heartless, senseless customs of their race had doomed to loveless lives of cruelty and of hate. Presently she spoke. John Carter, if ever a real man walked the cold, dead bosom of Barsoom you are one. I know that I can trust you and because the knowledge may someday help you or him or Deja Torres or myself, I am going to tell you the name of my father, nor place any restrictions or conditions upon your tongue. When the time comes, speak the truth if it seems best to you. I trust you because I know that you are not cursed with the terrible trait of absolute and unswerving truthfulness, that you could lie like one of your own Virginia gentlemen if a lie would save others from sorrow or suffering. My father's name is Tars Tarkas. Chapter 16 We plan escape The remainder of our journey to Tharkas was uneventful. We were twenty days upon the road, 
crossing two sea bottoms and passing through or around a number of ruined cities, mostly smaller than Karaid. Twice we crossed the famous Martian waterways, or canals, so called by our earthly astronomers. When we approached these points a warrior would be sent far ahead with the powerful field glass, and if no great body of red Martian troops was in sight we would advance as close as possible without chance of being seen and then camp until dark, when we would slowly approach the cultivated tract, and, locating one of the numerous, broad highways which cross these areas at regular intervals, creep silently and stealthily across to the arid lands upon the other side. It required five hours to make one of these crossings without a single halt, and the other consumed the entire night, so that we were just leaving the confines of the high-walled fields when the sun broke out upon us. Crossing in the darkness, as we did, I was unable to see but little, except as the nearer moon in her wild and ceaseless hurtling through the Barsoomian heavens, lit up little patches of the landscape from time to time, disclosing walled fields and low, rambling buildings, presenting much the appearance of earthly farms. There were many trees, methodically arranged, and some of them were of enormous height. There were animals in some of the enclosures, and they announced their presence by terrified squealings and snortings as they scented our queer, wild beasts and wilder human beings. Only once did I perceive a human being, and that was at the intersection of our crossroad with the wide, white turnpike which cuts each cultivated district longitudinally at its exact centre. The fellow must have been sleeping beside the road, for, as I came abreast of him, he raised upon one elbow and after a single glance at the approaching caravan leaped shrieking to his feet and fled madly down the road, scaling a nearby wall with the agility of a scared cat. The thugs paid him not the slightest attention. They were not out upon the warpath, and the only sign that I had that they had seen him was a quickening of the pace of the caravan as we hastened toward the bordering desert which marked our entrance into the realm of Talhages. Not once did I have speech with Deja Torres, as she sent no word to me that I would be welcome at her chariot, and my foolish pride kept me from making any advances. I verily believe that a man's way with women is in inverse ratio to his prowess among men. The weakling and the saphead have often great ability to charm the fair sex, while the fighting man who can face a thousand real dangers unafraid, sits hiding in the shadows like some frightened child. Just thirty days after my advent upon Barsoom we entered the ancient city of Thark from whose long-forgotten people this horde of green men have stolen even their name. The hordes of Thark number some thirty thousand souls, and are divided into twenty-five communities. Each community has its own Jed and lesser chieftains, but all are under the rule of Talhages, Jeddak of Thark. Five communities make their headquarters at the city of Thark and the balance are scattered among other deserted cities of ancient Mars throughout the district claimed by Talhages. We made our entry into the great central plaza early in the afternoon. There were no enthusiastic friendly greetings for the returned expedition. 
Those who chanced to be in sight spoke the names of warriors or women with whom they came in direct contact, in the formal greeting of their kind, but when it was discovered that they brought two captives a greater interest was aroused, and Deja Torres and I were the centers of inquiring groups. We were soon assigned to new quarters, and the balance of the day was devoted to settling ourselves to the changed conditions. My home now was upon an avenue leading into the plaza from the south, the main artery down which we had marched from the gates of the city. I was at the far end of the square and had an entire building to myself. The same grandeur of architecture which was so noticeable a characteristic of Karaid was in evidence here, only, if that were possible, on a larger and richer scale. My quarters would have been suitable for housing the greatest of earthly emperors, but to these queer creatures nothing about a building appealed to them but its size and the enormity of its chambers. The larger the building, the more desirable. And so Talhajus occupied what must have been an enormous public building, the largest in the city, but entirely unfitted for residence purposes. The next largest was reserved for Tomel the next for the Jed of a lesser rank, and so on to the bottom of the list of five Jeds. The warriors occupied the buildings with the chieftains to whose retinues they belonged, or, if they preferred, sought shelter among any of the thousands of untenanted buildings in their own quarter of town, each community being assigned a certain section of the city. The selection of building had to be made in accordance with these divisions, except in so far as the Jeds were concerned, they all occupying edifices which fronted upon the plaza. When I had finally put my house in order, or rather seen that I had been done, it was nearing sunset, and I hastened out with the intention of locating Sola and her charges, as I had determined upon having speech with Deja Torres and trying to impress on her the necessity of our at least patching up a truce until I could find some way of aiding her to escape. I searched in vain until the upper rim of the great red sun was just disappearing behind the horizon and then I spied the ugly head of Wool appearing from a second story window on the opposite side of the very street where I was quartered, but nearer the plaza. Without waiting for a further invitation I bolted up the winding runway which led to the second floor, and entering a great chamber at the front of the building was greeted by the frenzied Wohler, who threw his great carcass upon me, nearly hurling me to the floor. The poor old fellow was so glad to see me that I thought he would devour me, his head split from ear to ear, showing his three rows of tusks and his hobgoblin smile. Quieting him with a word of command and a caress, I looked hurriedly through the approaching gloom for a sign of Deja Torres, and then, not seeing her, I called her name. There was an answering murmur from the far corner of the apartment, and with a couple of quick strides I was standing beside her where she crouched among the furs and silks upon an ancient carved wooden seat. As I waited she rose to her full height and looking me straight in the eye said, what would Dote Soch, Thark, of Deja Torres his captive Deja Torres, I do not know how I have angered you. It was furthest from my desire to hurt or offend you, whom I had hoped to protect and comfort. Have none of me if it is your will, but that you must aid me in effecting your escape, 
if such a thing be possible, is not my request, but my command. When you are safe once more at your father's court you may do with me as you please, but from now on until that day I am your master, and you must obey and aid me. She looked at me long and earnestly and I thought that she was softening toward me. I understand your words, daughter Soch, she replied, but you I do not understand. You are a queer mixture of child and man, of brute and noble. I only wish that I might read your heart. Look down at your feet, Deja Torisk. It lies there now where it has lain since that other night at Karade, and where it will ever lie beating alone for you until death stills it forever. She took a little step toward me, her beautiful hands outstretched in a strange, groping gesture. What do you mean, John Carter? She whispered. What are you saying to me? I am saying what I had promised myself that I would not say to you, at least until you were no longer a captive among the green men. What from your attitude toward me for the past twenty days I had thought never to say to you. I am saying, Deja Torres, that I am yours, body and soul, to serve you, to fight for you, and to die for you. Only one thing I ask of you in return, and that is that you make no sign, either of condemnation or of approbation of my words until you are safe among your own people and that whatever sentiments you harbor toward me they be not influenced or colored by gratitude. Whatever I may do to serve you will be prompted solely from selfish motives, since it gives me more pleasure to serve you than not. I will respect your wishes, John Carter, because I understand the motives which prompt them, and I accept your service no more willingly than I bow to your authority. Your word shall be my law. I have twice wronged you in my thoughts and again I ask your forgiveness. Further conversation of a personal nature was prevented by the entrance of Solar, who was much agitated and holy and like her usual calm and possessed self. That horrible Sarkajah has been before Talhages, she cried, and from what I heard upon the plaza there is little hope for either of you. What do they say inquired Deja Torres? that you will be thrown to the wild Kalitz dogs in the great arena as soon as the hordes have assembled for the yearly games. Solar, I said, you are a Thark, but you hate and loathe the customs of your people as much as we do. Will you not accompany us in one supreme effort to escape? I am sure that Deja Torres can offer you a home and protection among her people, and your fate can be no worse among them than it must ever be here. Yes cried Deja Torres, come with us, Solar, you will be better off among the red men of Helium than you are here, and I can promise you not only a home with us, but the love and affection your nature craves and which must always be denied you by the customs of your own race. Come with us, Solar. We might go without you, but your fate would be terrible if they thought you had connived to aid us. I know that even that fear would not tempt you to interfere in our escape, but we want you with us, we want you to come to a land of sunshine and happiness, amongst the people who know the meaning of love, of sympathy, and of gratitude. Say that you will, Sola. Tell me that you will. The great waterway which leads to Helium is but fifty miles to the south, murmured Sola, half to herself, 
a swift thought might make it in three hours, and then to helium it is five hundred miles, most of the way through thinly settled districts. They would know and they would follow us. We might hide among the great trees for a time, but the chances are small indeed for escape. They would follow us to the very gates of helium, and they would take toll of life at every step. You do not know them. Is there no other way we might reach helium I asked. Can you not draw me a rough map of the country we must traverse, Deja Torres yes, she replied, and taking a great diamond from her hair she drew upon the marble floor the first map of Barsoomian territory I had ever seen. It was crisscrossed in every direction with long straight lines, sometimes running parallel and sometimes converging towards some great circle. The lines, she said, were waterways. The circles, cities. And one far to the northwest of us she pointed out as helium. There were other cities closer, but she said she feared to enter many of them, as they were not all friendly toward helium. Finally, after studying the map carefully in the moonlight which now flooded the room, I pointed out a waterway far to the north of us which also seemed to lead to helium. Does not this pierce your grandfather's territory I asked? Yes, she answered, but it is two hundred miles north of us. It is one of the waterways we crossed on the trip to Thark. They would never suspect that we would try for that distant waterway, I answered, and that is why I think that it is the best route for our escape. Solo agreed with me, and it was decided that we should leave Thark this same night. Just as quickly, in fact, as I could find and saddle my thoughts. Sola was to ride one and Deja Torres and I the other, each of us carrying sufficient food and drink to last us for two days, since the animals could not be urged too rapidly for so long a distance. I directed Sola to proceed with Deja Torres along one of the less frequented avenues to the southern boundary of the city, where I would overtake them with the thoughts as quickly as possible. Then, leaving them to gather what food, silks, and furs we were to need, I slipped quietly to the rear of the first floor, and entered the courtyard, where our animals were moving restlessly about, as was their habit, before settling down for the night. In the shadows of the buildings and out beneath the radiance of the Martian moons moved the great herd of thoughts and zetidas the latter grunting their low gutturals and the former occasionally emitting the sharp squeal which denotes the almost habitual state of rage in which these creatures passed their existence. They were quieter now, owing to the absence of man, but as they scented me they became more restless and their hideous noise increased. It was risky business, this entering a paddock of thoughts alone and at night. First, because their increasing noisiness might warn the nearby warriors that something was amiss, and also because for the slightest cause, or for no cause at all some great bullthoat might take it upon himself to lead a charge upon me. Having no desire to awaken their nasty tempers upon such a night as this, where so much depended upon secrecy and dispatch, I hugged the shadows of the buildings ready at an instant's warning to leap into the safety of a nearby door or window. Thus I moved silently to the great gates which opened upon the street at the back of the court, 
and as I neared the exit I called softly to my two animals. How I thanked the kind providence which had given me the foresight to win the love and confidence of these wild dumb brutes, for presently from the far side of the court I saw two huge bugs forcing their way toward me through the surging mountains of flesh. They came quite close to me, rubbing their muzzles against my body and nosing for the bits of food it was always my practice to reward them with. Opening the gates I ordered the two great beasts to pass out, and then slipping quietly after them I closed the portals behind me. I did not saddle or mount the animals there, but instead walked quietly in the shadows of the buildings toward an unfrequented avenue which led toward the point I had arranged to meet Deja Torres and Sola. With the noiselessness of disembodied spirits we moved stealthily along the deserted streets, but not until we were within sight of the plain beyond the city did I commence to breathe freely. I was sure that Sola and Deja Torres would find no difficulty in reaching our rendezvous undetected, but with my great thoughts I was not so sure for myself, as it was quite unusual for warriors to leave the city after dark. In fact there was no place for them to go within any but a long ride. I reached the appointed meeting place safely, but as Deja Torres and Solo were not there I led my animals into the entrance hall of one of the large buildings. Presuming that one of the other women of the same household may have come in to speak to Sola, and so delayed their departure, I did not feel any undue apprehension until nearly an hour had passed without a sign of them, and by the time another half hour had crawled away I was becoming filled with grave anxiety. Then there broke upon the stillness of the night the sound of an approaching party, which, from the noise, I knew could be no fugitives creeping stealthily toward liberty. Soon the party was near me, and from the black shadows of my own tranceway I perceived a score of mounted warriors, who, in passing, dropped a dozen words that fetched my heart clean into the top of my head. He would likely have arranged to meet them just without the city, and so I heard no more, they had passed on. But it was enough. Our plan had been discovered, and the chances for escape from now on to the fearful end would be small indeed. My one hope now was to return undetected to the quarters of Deja Torres and learn what fate had overtaken her, but how to do it with these great monstrous thoughts upon my hands, now that the city probably was aroused by the knowledge of my escape was a problem of no mean proportions. Suddenly an idea occurred to me, and acting on my knowledge of the construction of the buildings of these ancient Martian cities with a hollow court within the center of each square, I groped my way blindly through the dark chambers, calling the great thoughts after me. They had difficulty in negotiating some of the doorways, but as the buildings fronting the city's principal exposures were all designed upon a magnificent scale, they were able to wriggle through without sticking fast, and thus we finally made the inner court where I found, as I had expected, the usual carpet of moss-like vegetation which would prove their food and drink until I could return them to their own enclosure. That they would be as quiet and contented here as elsewhere I was confident, nor was there but the remotest possibility that they would be discovered, as the green men had no great desire to enter these outlying buildings 
which were frequented by the only thing, I believe, which caused them the sensation of fear the great white apes of Barsoom. Removing the saddle trappings, I hid them just within the rear doorway of the building through which we had entered the court, and, turning the beasts loose, quickly made my way across the court to the rear of the buildings upon the further side, and thence to the avenue beyond. Waiting in the doorway of the building until I was assured that no one was approaching, I hurried across to the opposite side and through the first doorway to the court beyond. Thus, crossing through court after court with only the slight chance of detection which the necessary crossing of the avenues entailed, I made my way in safety to the courtyard in the rear of Deja Torres' quarters. Here, of course, I found the beasts of the warriors who quartered in the adjacent buildings, and the warriors themselves I might expect to meet within if I entered. But, fortunately for me, I had another and safer method of reaching the upper story where Deja Torres should be found, and, after first determining as nearly as possible which of the buildings she occupied, for I had never observed them before from the court side. I took advantage of my relatively great strength and agility and sprang upward until I grasped the sill of a second-story window which I thought to be in the rear of her apartment. Drawing myself inside the room I moved stealthily toward the front of the building, and not until I had quite reached the doorway of her room was I made aware by voices that it was occupied. I did not rush headlong in but listened without to assure myself that it was Deja Torres and that it was safe to venture within. It was well indeed that I took this precaution, for the conversation I heard was in the low gutturals of men, and the words which finally came to me proved a most timely warning. The speaker was a chieftain and he was giving orders to four of his warriors. And when he returns to this chamber, he was saying, as he surely will when he finds she does not meet him at the city's edge, you four are to spring upon him and disarm him. It will require the combined strength of all of you to do it if the reports they bring back from Karade are correct. When you have him fast bound bear him to the vaults beneath the Jeddak's quarters and chain him securely where he may be found when Talhages wishes him. Allow him to speak with none nor permit any other to enter this apartment before he comes. There will be no danger of the girl returning, for by this time she is safe in the arms of Talhages, and may all her ancestors have pity upon her, for Talhages will have none. The great Sarkaja has done a noble knight's work. I go, and if you fail to capture him when he comes, I commend your carcasses to the cold bosom of ice. Chapter 17 A costly recapture as the speaker ceased he turned to leave the apartment by the door where I was standing, but I needed to wait no longer. I had heard enough to fill my soul with dread, and stealing quietly away I returned to the courtyard by the way I had come. My plan of action was formed upon the instant and crossing the square and the bordering avenue upon the opposite side I soon stood within the courtyard of Talhages. The brilliantly lighted apartments of the first floor told me where first to seek, and advancing to the windows I peered within. I soon discovered that my approach was not to be the easy thing I had hoped, for the rear rooms bordering the court were filled with warriors and women, 
I then glanced up at the stories above, discovering that the third was apparently unlighted, and so decided to make my entrance to the building from that point. It was the work of but a moment for me to reach the windows above, and soon I had drawn myself within the sheltering shadows of the unlighted third floor. Fortunately the room I had selected was untenanted, and creeping noiselessly to the corridor beyond I discovered a light in the apartments ahead of me. Reaching what appeared to be a doorway I discovered that it was but an opening upon an immense inner chamber which towered from the first floor, two stories below me, to the dome-like roof of the building, high above my head. The floor of this great circular hall was thronged with chieftains, warriors and women, and at one end was a great raised platform upon which squatted the most hideous beast I had ever put my eyes upon. He had all the cold, hard, cruel, terrible features of the green warriors, but accentuated and debased by the animal passions to which he had given himself over for many years. There was not a mark of dignity or pride upon his bestial countenance, while his enormous bulk spread itself out upon the platform where he squatted like some huge devil fish, his six limbs accentuating the similarity in a horrible and startling manner. But the sight that froze me with apprehension was that of Deja Torres and Sola stammering there before him, and the fiendish leer of him as he let his great protruding eyes gloat upon the lines of her beautiful figure. She was speaking, but I could not hear what she said, nor could I make out the low grumbling of his reply. She stood there erect before him, her head high held, and even at the distance I was from them I could read the scorn and disgust upon her face as she let her haughty glance rest without sign of fear upon him. She was indeed the proud daughter of a thousand Jeddaks, every inch of her dear, precious little body. So small, so frail beside the towering warriors around her, but in her majesty dwarfing them into insignificance. She was the mightiest figure among them and I verily believe that they felt it. Presently Talhajas made a sign that the chamber be cleared, and that the prisoners be left alone before him. Slowly the chieftains, the warriors and the women melted away into the shadows of the surrounding chambers, and Deja Torres and Sola stood alone before the Jeddak of the Tharks. One chieftain alone had hesitated before departing. I saw him standing in the shadows of a mighty column, his fingers nervously toying with the hilt of his greatsword and his cruel eyes bent in implacable hatred upon Talhajas. It was Tars Tarkas, and I could read his thoughts as they were an open book for the undisguised loathing upon his face. He was thinking of that other woman who, forty years ago, had stood before this beast, and could I have spoken a word into his ear at that moment the reign of Talhajas would have been over. But finally he also strode from the room, not knowing that he left his own daughter at the mercy of the creature he the most loathed. Talhajas arose, and I, half fearing, half anticipating his intentions, hurried to the winding runway which led to the floors below. No one was near to intercept me, and I reached the main floor of the chamber unobserved, taking my station in the shadow of the same column that Tars Tarkas had but just deserted. As I reached the floor Talhajas was speaking. Princess of Helium, 
I might wring a mighty ransom from your people would I but return you to them unharmed, but a thousand times rather would I watch that beautiful face writhe in the agony of torture. It shall be long drawn out, that I promise you. Ten days of pleasure were all too short to show the love I harbor for your race. The terrors of your death shall haunt the slumbers of the red men through all the ages to come. They will shudder in the shadows of the night as their fathers tell them of the awful vengeance of the green men, of the power and might and hate and cruelty of Talhages. But before the torture you shall be mine for one short hour, and word of the two shall go forth to Tarduzmas, Jeddak of Helium, your grandfather, that he may grovel upon the ground in the agony of his sorrow. Tomorrow the torture will commence. Tonight thou art Talhages. Come he sprang down from the platform and grasped her roughly by the arm, but scarcely had he touched her than I leaped between them. My short sword, sharp and gleaming was in my right hand. I could have plunged it into his putrid heart before he realized that I was upon him. But as I raised my arm to strike I thought of Tars Tarkas, and, with all my rage, with all my hatred, I could not rob him of that sweet moment for which he had lived and hoped all these long, weary years, and so, instead, I swung my good right fist full upon the point of his jaw. Without a sound he slipped to the floor as one dead. In the same deathly silence I grasped Dejah Torres by the hand, and motioning Sola to follow we sped noiselessly from the chamber and to the floor above. Unseen we reached the rear window and with the straps and leather of my trappings I lowered, first Sola and then Dejah Torres to the ground below. Dropping lightly after them I drew them rapidly around the court in the shadows of the buildings, and thus we returned over the same course I had so recently followed from the distant boundary of the city. We finally came upon my thoughts in the courtyard where I had left them and placing the trappings upon them we hastened through the building to the avenue beyond. Mounting, Sola upon one beast, and Dejah Torres behind me upon the other, we rode from the city of Thar through the hills to the south. Instead of circling back around the city to the northwest and toward the nearest waterway which lay so short a distance from us, we turned to the northeast and struck out upon the mossy ways to cross which for two hundred dangerous and weary miles, lay another main artery leading to Helium. No word was spoken until we had left the city far behind, but I could hear the quiet sobbing of Dejah Torres as she clung to me with her dear head resting against my shoulder. If we make it, my chieftain, the debt of Helium will be a mighty one, greater than she can ever pay you. And should we not make it, she continued. The debt is no less, though Helium will never know, for you have saved the last of our line from worse than death. I did not answer, but instead reached to my side and pressed the little fingers of her I loved where they clung to me for support, and then, in unbroken silence, we sped over the yellow, moonlit moss, each of us occupied with his own thoughts. For my part I could not be other than joyful had I tried with Dejah Torres' warm body pressed close to mine, and with all our unpissed danger my heart was singing as gaily as though we were already entering the gates of Helium.
Our earlier plans had been so sadly upset that we now found ourselves without food or drink, and I alone was armed. We therefore urged our beasts to a speed that must tell on them sorely before we could hope to sight the ending of the first stage of our journey. We rode all night and all the following day with only a few short rests. On the second night both we and our animals were completely fagged, and so we lay down upon the moss and slept for some five or six hours, taking up the journey once more before daylight. All the following day we rode, and when, late in the afternoon we had sighted no distant trees, the mark of the great waterways throughout all Barsoom, the terrible truth flashed upon us we were lost. Evidently we had circled, but which way it was difficult to say, nor did it seem possible with the sun to guide us by day and the moons and stars by night. At any rate no waterway was in sight, and the entire party was almost ready to drop from hunger, thirst and fatigue. Far ahead of us and a trifle to the right we could distinguish the outlines of low mountains. These we decided to attempt to reach in the hope that from some ridge we might discern the missing waterway. Night fell upon us before we reached our goal, and, almost fainting from weariness and weakness, we lay down and slept. I was awakened early in the morning by some huge body pressing close to mine, and opening my eyes with a start I beheld my blessed old Wola snuggling close to me. The faithful brute had followed us across that trackless waste to share our fate, whatever it might be. Putting my arms about his neck I pressed my cheek close to his, nor am I ashamed that I did it, nor of the tears that came to my eyes as I thought of his love for me. Shortly after this Deja Torres and Solar awakened, and it was decided that we push on at once in an effort to gain the hills. We had gone scarcely a mile when I noticed that my thought was commencing to stumble and stagger in a most pitiful manner although we had not attempted to force them out of the walk since about noon of the preceding day. Suddenly he lurched wildly to one side and pitched violently to the ground. Deja Torres and I were thrown clear of him and fell upon the soft moss with scarcely a jar. But the poor beast was in a pitiable condition, not even being able to rise, although relieved of our weight. Sola told me that the coolness of the night, when it fell, together with the rest would doubtless revive him, and so I decided not to kill him, as was my first intention, as I had thought it cruel to leave him alone there to die of hunger and thirst. Relieving him of his trappings, which I flung down beside him, we left the poor fellow to his fate, and pushed on with the one thought as best we could. Sola and I walked, making Deja Torres ride, much against her will. In this way we had progressed to within about a mile of the hills we were endeavouring to reach when Deja Torres, from her point of vantage upon the foot, cried out that she saw a great party of mounted men filing down from a pass in the hills several miles away. Sola and I both looked in the direction she indicated, and there, plainly discernible, were several hundred mounted warriors. They seemed to be headed in a southwesterly direction which would take them away from us. They doubtless were Thark warriors who had been sent out to capture us, and we breathed a great sigh of relief that they were travelling in the opposite direction. 
quickly lifting Deja Torres from the foot. I commanded the animal to lie down and we three did the same, presenting as small an object as possible for fear of attracting the attention of the warriors toward us. We could see them as they filed out of the pass, just for an instant, before they were lost to view behind the friendly ridge. To a most providential ridge. Since, had they been in view for any great length of time, they scarcely could have failed to discover us. As what proved to be the last warrior came into view from the pass, he halted and, to our consternation, threw his small but powerful field glass to his eye and scanned the sea bottom in all directions. Evidently he was a chieftain, for in certain marching formations among the green men a chieftain brings up the extreme rear of the column. As his glass swung toward us our hearts stopped in our breasts and I could feel the cold sweat start from every pore in my body. Presently it swung full upon us and stopped. The tension on our nerves was near the breaking point, and I doubt if any of us breathed for the few moments he held us covered by his glass. And then he lowered it and we could see him shout a command to the warriors who had passed from our sight behind the ridge. He did not wait for them to join him, however, Instead he wheeled his thoat and came tearing madly in our direction. There was but one slight chance and that we must take quickly. Raising my strange Martian rifle to my shoulder I sighted and touched the button which controlled the trigger. There was a sharp explosion as the missile reached its goal, and the charging chieftain pitched backward from his flying mount. Springing to my feet I urged the thoat to rise and directed Sola to take Deja Torres with her upon him and make a mighty effort to reach the hills before the green warriors were upon us. I knew that in the ravines and gullies they might find a temporary hiding place, and even though they died there of hunger and thirst it would be better so than that they fell into the hands of the Tharks. Forcing my two revolvers upon them as a slight means of protection, and, as a last resort, as an escape for themselves from the horrid death which recapture would surely mean, I lifted Deja Torres in my arms and placed her upon the thoat behind Sola, who had already mounted at my command. Goodbye, my princess, I whispered, we may meet in Helium yet. I have escaped from worse plights than this, and I tried to smile as I lied. What, she cried, are you not coming with us how may I? Deja Torres someone must hold these fellows off for a while, and I can better escape them alone than could the three of us together. She sprang quickly from the thoat and, throwing her dear arms about my neck, turned to Sola, saying with quiet dignity, Fly, Sola Deja Torres remains to die with the man she loves. Those words are engraved upon my heart. Ah! Gladly would I give up my life a thousand times could I only hear them once again. But I could not then give even a second to the rapture of her sweet embrace, and pressing my lips to hers for the first time, I picked her up bodily and tossed her to her seat behind Solo again, commanding the latter in peremptory tones to hold her there by force, and then, slapping the thoat upon the flank, I saw them borne away. Deja Torres struggling to the last to free herself from Sola's grasp. Turning, 
I beheld the green warriors mounting the ridge and looking for their chieftain. In a moment they saw him, and then me. But scarcely had they discovered me than I commenced firing, lying flat upon my belly in the moss. I had an even hundred rounds in the magazine of my rifle, and another hundred in the belt at my back, and I kept up a continuous stream of fire until I saw all of the warriors who had been first to return from behind the ridge either dead or scurrying to cover. My respite was short-lived however, for soon the entire party, numbering some thousand men, came charging into view, racing madly toward me. I fired until my rifle was empty and they were almost upon me, and then a glance showing me that Deja Torres and Sola had disappeared among the hills, I sprang up, throwing down my useless gun, and started away in the direction opposite to the taken by Sola and her charge. If ever Martians had an exhibition of jumping, it was granted those astonished warriors on that day long years ago, but while it led them away from Deja Torres it did not distract their attention from endeavoring to capture me. They raced wildly after me until, finally, my foot struck a projecting piece of quartz, and down I went sprawling upon the moss. As I looked up they were upon me, and although I drew my long sword in an attempt to sell my life as dearly as possible, it was soon over. I reeled beneath their blows which fell upon me in perfect torrents. My head swam. All was black, and I went down beneath them to oblivion. Chapter 18 Chained in Wahoon It must have been several hours before I regained consciousness and I well remember the feeling of surprise which swept over me as I realized that I was not dead. I was lying among a pile of sleeping silks and furs in the corner of a small room in which were several green warriors, and bending over me was an ancient and ugly female. As I opened my eyes she turned to one of the warriors, saying, He will live, O oh Jed. Tis well, replied the one so addressed, rising and approaching my couch, he should render rare sport for the great games. And now as my eyes fell upon him, I saw that he was no Thark, for his ornaments and metal were not of the Tord. He was a huge fellow, terribly scarred about the face and chest, and with one broken tusk and a missing ear. Strapped on either breast were human skulls and depending from these a number of dried human hands. His reference to the great games of which I had heard so much while among the Tharks convinced me that I had but jumped from purgatory into Gehenna. After a few more words with the female, during which she assured him that I was now fully fit to travel, the Jed ordered that we mount and ride after the main column. I was strapped securely to as wild and unmanageable a thought as I had ever seen, and, with a mounted warrior on either side to prevent the beast from bolting, we rode forth at a furious pace in pursuit of the column. My wounds gave me but little pain, so wonderfully, and rapidly had the applications and injections of the female exercised their therapeutic powers, and so deftly had she bound and plastered the injuries. Just before dark we reached the main body of troops shortly after they had made camp for the night. I was immediately taken before the leader, who proved to be the Jeddak of the hordes of Warhoon. Like the Jed who had brought me, he was frightfully scarred, 
and also decorated with the breastplate of human skulls and dried dead hands which seemed to mark all the greater warriors among the Warhoons, as well as to indicate their awful ferocity, which greatly transcends even that of the Tharks. The Jeddak, Barcomas, who was comparatively young, was the object of the fierce and jealous hatred of his old lieutenant, Tukova, the Jet who had captured me, and I could not but note the almost studied efforts which the latter made to affront his superior. He entirely omitted the usual formal salutation as we entered the presence of the Jeddak, and as he pushed me roughly before the ruler he exclaimed in a loud and menacing voice. I have brought a strange creature wearing the metal of a Thark whom it is my pleasure to have battle with the wild thought at the great games. He will die as Barcomas, your Jeddak, sees fit, if at all, replied the young ruler, with emphasis and dignity. If at all or Dukova. By the dead hands at my throat but he shall die, Barcomas. No maudlin weakness on your part shall save him. Oh, would the Torhoon were ruled by a real Jeddak rather than by a water-hearted weakling from whom even old Dukova could tear the metal with his bare hands Barcomas eyed the defiant and insubordinate chieftain for an instant, his expression one of haughty, fearless contempt and hate, and then without drawing a weapon and without uttering a word he hurled himself at the throat of his defamer. I never before had seen two green Martian warriors battle with nature's weapons and the exhibition of animal ferocity which ensued was as fearful a thing as the most disordered imagination could picture. They tore at each other's eyes and ears with their hands and with their gleaming tusks repeatedly slashed and gored until both were cut fairly to ribbons from head to foot. Barcomas had much the better of the battle as he was stronger, quicker and more intelligent. It soon seemed that the encounter was done saving only the final death thrust when Barcomas slipped him breaking away from a clinch. It was the one little opening that Dukova needed, and hurling himself at the body of his adversary he buried his single mighty tusk in Barcomas' groin and with a last powerful effort ripped the young Jeddak wide open the full length of his body, the great tusk finally wedging in the bones of Barcomas' jaw. Victor and vanquished rolled limp and lifeless upon the moss, a huge mass of torn and bloody flesh. Barcomas was stone dead, and only the most Herculean efforts on the part of Dukova's females saved him from the fate he deserved. Three days later he walked without assistance to the body of Barcomas which, by custom, had not been moved from where it fell and placing his foot upon the neck of his erstwhile ruler he assumed the title of Jeddak of Warhoon. The dead Jeddak's hands and head were removed to be added to the ornaments of his conqueror, and then his women cremated what remained, amid wild and terrible laughter. The injuries to Dukova had delayed the march so greatly that it was decided to give up the expedition which was arrayed upon a small Thark community in retaliation for the destruction of the incubator, until after the great games, and the entire body of warriors, ten thousand in number, turned back toward Warhoon. My introduction to these cruel and bloodthirsty people was but an index to the scenes I witnessed almost daily while with them. They are a smaller horde than the Tharks but much more ferocious. 
Not a day passed but that some members of the various Warhun communities met in deadly combat. I have seen as high as eight mortal duels within a single day. We reached the city of Warhun after some three days' march and I was immediately cast into a dungeon and heavily chained to the floor and walls. Food was brought me at intervals but owing to the utter darkness of the place I do not know whether I lay there days, or weeks, or months. It was the most horrible experience of all my life and that my mind did not give way to the terrors of that inky blackness has been a wonder to me ever since. The place was filled with creeping, crawling things. Cold, sinuous bodies passed over me when I lay down, and in the darkness I occasionally caught glimpses of gleaming, fiery eyes, fixed in horrible intentness upon me. No sound reached me from the world above and no word would my jailer vouchsafe when my food was brought to me, although I at first bombarded him with questions. Finally all the hatred and maniacal loathing for these awful creatures who had placed me in this horrible place was scented by my tottering reason upon this single emissary who represented to me the entire horde of Warhounds. I had noticed that he always advanced with his dim torch to where he could place the food within my reach and as he stooped to place it upon the floor his head was about on a level with my breast. So, with the cunning of a madman, I backed into the far corner of my cell when next I heard him approaching and gathering a little slack of the great chain which held me in my hand I waited his coming, crouching like some beast of prey. As he stooped to place my food upon the ground I swung the chain above my head and crashed the links with all my strength upon his skull. Without a sound he slipped to the floor, stone dead. Laughing and chattering like the idiot I was fast becoming I fell upon his prostrate form my fingers feeling for his dead throat. Presently they came in contact with a small chain at the end of which dangled a number of keys. The touch of my fingers on these keys brought back my reason with the suddenness of thought. No longer was I a gibbering idiot, but a sane, reasoning man with the means of escape within my very hands. As I was groping to remove the chain from about my victim's neck I glanced up into the darkness to see six pairs of gleaming eyes fixed, unwinking, upon me. Slowly they approached and slowly I shrank back from the awful horror of them. Back into my corner I crouched holding my hands palms out, before me, and stealthily on came the awful eyes until they reached the dead body at my feet. Then slowly they retreated but this time with a strange grating sound and finally they disappeared in some black and distant recess of my dungeon. Chapter 19 Battling in the arena slowly I regained my composure and finally essayed again to attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer. But as I reached out into the darkness to locate it I found to my horror that it was gone. Then the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair. As they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months, through all this awful eternity of my imprisonment to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days no food was brought me, but then a new messenger appeared and my incarceration went on as before, 
but not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim torchlight I saw that he was a red Martian and I could scarcely await the departure of his guards to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly the Martian word of greeting, Kea. Who are you who speaks out of the darkness he answered John Carter, a friend of the red men of Helium. I am of Helium, he said, but I do not recall your name. And then I told him my story as I have written it here, omitting only any reference to my love for Deja Torres. He was much excited by the news of Helium's princess and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached a point of safety from where they left me. He said that he knew the place well because the defile through which the Wahoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south. Deja Torres and Sola entered the hills not five miles from a great waterway and are now probably quite safe, he assured me. My fellow prisoner was Kondoskin, a Padwar lieutenant in the Navy of Helium. He had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the Tharks at the time of Deja Torres' capture, and he briefly related the events which followed the defeat of the battleships. Badly injured and only partially manned they had limped slowly toward Helium, but while passing near the city of Zodanga, the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies among the red men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by a great body of war vessels and all but the craft to which Kondoskin belonged were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three of the Zodangan warships but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after the capture of Deja Torres, or about the time of our coming to Thark, his vessel had reached Helium with about ten survivors of the original crew of seven hundred officers and men. Immediately seven great fleets, each of one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched to search for Deja Torres, and from these vessels two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search for the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, but no trace of Deja Torres had been found. They had been searching among the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended their quest to the south. Kantoskin had been detailed to one of the small one-man flyers and had had the misfortune to be discovered by the Wahoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone he had landed at the city's boundary and on foot had penetrated to the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights he had explored their quarters and their dungeons in search of his beloved princess only to fall into the hands of a party of Wahoons as he was about to leave, after assuring himself that Deja Torres was not a captive there. During the period of our incarceration Kantoskin and I became well acquainted, and formed a warm personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however before we were dragged forth from our dungeon for the great games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheater, 
which instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris so that how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition it held the entire 20,000 wahoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it the wahoons had piled building stone from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and the captives from escaping into the audience and at each end had been constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Kantoskin and I were confined together in one of the cages. In the others were wild callots, thoughts, mad zitiders, green warriors, and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of Barsoom which I had never before seen. The din of their roaring, Growling and squealing was deafening and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest heart feel grave forebodings. Kantos can explain to me that at the end of the day one of these prisoners would gain freedom and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day would be pitted against each other until only two remained alive. The victor in the last encounter being set free whether animal or man. The following morning the cages would be filled with a new consignment of victims, and so on throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged the amphitheater began to fill and within an hour every available part of the seating space was occupied. Dukova, with his jeds and chieftains, sat at the center of one side of the arena upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Dukova the doors of two cages were thrown open and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the center of the arena. Each was given a dagger and then, at the far end, a pack of twelve callots, or wild dogs were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenseless women I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to the excellent quality of the sport and when I turned back to the arena, as Kantoskin told me it was over, I saw three victorious callots, snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given a good account of themselves. Next to Madzitidar was loosed among the remaining dogs, and so it went throughout the long, hot, horrible day. During the day I was pitted against first men and then beasts, but as I was armed with a long sword and always outclassed my adversary in agility and generally in strength as well, it proved but child's play to me. Time and time again I won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude, and toward the end there were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally there were but three of us left. A great green warrior of some far northern horde, Kamtozkin, and myself. The other two were to battle and then I to fight the conqueror for the liberty which was accorded the final winner. Kamtozkin had fought several times during the day and like myself had always proven victorious, but occasionally by the smallest of margins, especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best his giant adversary who had mowed down all before him during the day. 
The fellow towered nearly 16 feet in height, while Kantoskan was some inches under 6 feet. As they advanced to meet one another I saw for the first time a trick of Marsham swordsmanship which centered Kantoskan's every hope of victory and life on one cast of the dice, for, as he came to within about 20 feet of the huge fellow he threw his sword arm far behind him over his shoulder and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon point foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow and piercing the poor devil's heart laid him dead upon the arena. Kantoskin and I were now pitted against each other but as we approached to the encounter I whispered to him to prolong the battle until nearly dark in the hope that we might find some means of escape. The horde evidently guessed that we had no hearts to fight each other and so they howled in rage as neither of us placed a fatal thrust. Just as I saw the sudden coming of dark I whispered to Kantoskin to thrust his sword between my left arm and my body. As he did so I staggered back clasping the sword tightly with my arm and thus fell to the ground with his weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Kantoskin perceived my cool and stepping quickly to my side he placed his foot upon my neck and withdrawing his sword from my body gave me the final death blow through the neck which is supposed to sever the jugular vein, but in this instance the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena. In the darkness which had now fallen none could tell but that he had really finished me. I whispered to him to go and claim his freedom and then look for me in the hills east of the city, and so he left me. When the amphitheatre had cleared I crept stealthily to the top and as the great excavation lay far from the plaza and in an untenanted portion of the great dead city I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. Chapter 20 In the atmosphere factory for two days I waited there for Kantoskin. But as he did not come I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction toward a point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of this priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbling through the nights guided only by the stars and hiding during the days behind some protruding rock or among the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts. Strange, uncouth monstrosities that leaped upon me in the dark, so that I had ever to grasp my long sword in my hand that I might be ready for them. Usually my strange, newly acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time, but once I was downed with vicious fangs at my jugular and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew that I was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me I did not know, but that it was large and heavy and many-legged I could feel. My hands were at its throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves in my neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers, vise-like, upon its windpipe. Without sound we lay there, the beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs and I straining to maintain my grip and choked the life from it as I kept it from my throat. Slowly my arms gave to the unequal struggle, and inch by inch the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept toward me, until, as the hairy face touched mine again, I realized that all was over. 
and then a living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness full upon the creature that held me pinioned to the ground. The two rolled growling upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner, but it was soon over and my preserver stood with lowered head above the throat of the dead thing which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomian scene, showed me that my preserver was Wooler, but from whence he had come, or how found me, I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship it is needless to say but my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety as to the reason of his leaving Deja Torres. Only her death I felt sure, could account for his absence from her, so faithful I knew him to be to my commands. By the light of the now brilliant moons I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet I realized that the poor fellow was more than half starved. I, myself, was in but little better plight but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh and I had no means of making a fire. When Wooler had finished his meal I again took up my weary and seemingly endless wandering in quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak of the fifteenth day of my search I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. About noon I dragged myself wearily to the portals of a huge building which covered perhaps four square miles and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls other than the tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. I could find no bell or other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small round roll in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was of about the bigness of a lead pencil and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking tube I put my mouth to it and was about to call into it when a voice issued from it asking me whom I might be, where from, and the nature of my errand. I explained that I had escaped from the war wounds and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. You wear the metal of a green warrior and are followed by a callot, yet you are of the figure of a red man. In color you are neither green nor red. In the name of the ninth day, what manner of creature are you? I am a friend of the red men of Barsoom and I am starving. In the name of humanity open to us, I replied. Presently the door commenced to recede before me until it had sunk into the wall fifty feet, then it stopped and slid easily to the left, exposing a short, narrow corridor of concrete at the further end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight, yet immediately we passed the first door it slid gently into place behind us and receded rapidly to its original position in the front wall of the building. As the door had slipped aside I had noted its great thickness, fully twenty feet, and as it reached its place once more after closing behind us. Great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk in the floor. A second and third door receded before me and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached a large inner chamber where I found food and drink set out upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my callot, 
and while I was thus engaged my invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination. Your statements are most remarkable, said the voice, on concluding its questioning, but you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not at Barsoom. I can tell that by the conformation of your brain and the strange location of your internal organs and the shape and size of your heart. Can you see through me? I exclaimed. Yes, I can see all but your thoughts, and were you a Barsoomi and I could read those. Then a door opened at the far side of the chamber and a strange, dried up, little mummy of a man came toward me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment, a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner plate set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter, that scintillated nine different and distinct rays. The seven colors of our earthly prism and two beautiful rays which, to me, were new and nameless. I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought while he could not fathom an iota from my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power, for the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone in my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped to the five principal air centers of the planet where, as it is released, contact with the ether of space transforms it into atmosphere. There is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years, and the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all Mars with the atmosphere compound. For eight hundred years, he told me, he had watched these pumps which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over twenty-four and one-half earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him. Half a Martian year, about 344 of our days, each of these men spend alone in this huge, isolated plant. Every Red Martian is taught during earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere, 
but only to at one time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building, which, built as it is with walls a hundred and fifty feet thick, is absolutely unassailable, even the roof being guarded from assault by aircraft by a glass covering five feet thick. The only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man, as all Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life of Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched his thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by the action of a certain combination of thought waves. To experiment with my newfound toy I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination and so I asked him in a casual man how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash there leaped to his mind nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that this was a secret he must not divulge. From then on his manner toward me changed as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging his great secret, and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer who would help me on my way to Zodanga, which he said, was the nearest Martian city. But be sure that you do not let them know you are bound for helium as they are at war with that country. My assistant and I are of no country, we belong to Albasum and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands. Even among the green men though we do not trust ourselves to their hands if we can avoid it, he added. And so good night, my friend, he continued, may you have a long and restful sleep yes, a long sleep. And though he smiled pleasantly I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger and the half-formed words. I am sorry, but it is for the best good of Barsoom. As he closed the door of my chamber behind him his thoughts were cut off from me as was the sight of him, which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought transference. What was I to do how could I escape through these mighty walls easily could I kill him now that I was warned, but once he was dead I could no more escape and with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant I should die with all the other inhabitants of the planet all, even Deja Taurus was she not already dead. For the others I did not give the snap of my finger, but the thought of Deja Taurus drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously I opened the door of my apartment and, followed by Wola, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme had come to me, I would attempt to force the great locks by the nine thought waves I had read in my host's mind. Creeping stealthily through corridor after corridor and down winding runways which turned hither and thither I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast at morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows of a recess in the corridor. Dragging Wola up to me I crouched low in the darkness. 
Presently the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I had been about to pass through I saw that he held a long thin dagger in his hand and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then return to my bedchamber and finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump room, I stole stealthily from my hiding place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive lock I hurled the night and thought waves against it. In breathless expectancy I waited, when finally the great door moved softly toward me and slid quietly to one side. One after the other the remaining mighty portals opened at my command and Wula and I stepped forth into the darkness, free, but little better off than we had been before, other than that we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile I made for the first crossroad, intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning and entering the first enclosure I came to I searched for some evidences of a habitation. There were low rambling buildings of concrete barred with heavy impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hallooing brought any response. Weary and exhausted from sleeplessness I threw myself upon the ground commanding Wooler to stand guard. Some time later I was awakened by his frightful growlings and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us and covering me with their rifles. I am unarmed and no enemy, I hastened to explain. I have been a prisoner among the green men and am on my way to Zodanga. All I ask is food and rest for myself and my cadet and the proper directions for reaching my destination. They lowered their rifles and advanced pleasantly toward me placing their right hands upon my left shoulder, after the manner of their custom of salute, and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings. They then took me to the house of one of them which was only a short distance away. The buildings I had been hammering at in the early morning were occupied only by stock and farm produce, the house proper standing among a grove of enormous trees and, like all red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft which slid up or down within a sleeve sunk in the ground, and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwellings, the red Martians simply run them up out of harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without if they wish to go away and leave them. These brothers, with their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors and confirmed bachelors who were too poor to pay the high celibate tax which all red Martian governments impose. They were the personification of cordiality and hospitality and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experiences.
When they had heard my story I omitted all reference to Deja Torres and the old man of the atmosphere plant they advised me to color my body to more nearly resemble their own race and then attempt to find employment in Zodanga, either in the army or the navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until after you have proven your trustworthiness and won friends among the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service, as we are a warlike people on Barsoom, explain to one of them, and save our richest favors for the fighting man. When I was ready to depart they furnished me with a small domestic bullfoot, such as is used for saddle purposes by all Red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of his huge and fierce cousin of the wills. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil with which I anointed my entire body and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long, in the prevailing fashion of the time, square at the back and banged in front, so that I could have passed anywhere upon Barsoom as a full-fledged red Martian. My metal and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodangan gentleman, attached to the house of Ta, which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodangan money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from our own except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays his creditors in full and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in mines, which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody except the debtor as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficient voluntary labor to work the great isolated farm lands of Mars, stretching as they do like narrow ribbons from pole to pole through wild stretches peopled by wild animals and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Basum, and bidding me farewell they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. Chapter 21 An Air Scout for Zodanga As I proceeded on my journey towards Zodanga many strange and interesting sights arrested my attention, and at the several farmhouses where I stopped I learned a number of new and instructive things concerning the methods and manners of Basum. The water which supplies the farms of Mars is collected in immense underground reservoirs at either pole from the melting ice caps and pumped through long conduits to the various populated centers. Along either side of these conduits, and extending their entire length, lie the cultivated districts. These are divided into tracts of about the same size, each tract being under the supervision of one or more government officers. Instead of flooding the surface of the fields, and thus wasting immense quantities of water by evaporation, the precious liquid is carried underground through a vast network of small pipes directly to the roots of the vegetation. The crops upon Mars are always uniform, for there are no droughts, no rains, no high winds, and no insects, or destroying birds. On this trip I tasted the first meat I had eaten since leaving Earth large, juicy steaks and chops from the well-fed domestic animals of the farms. 
Also I enjoyed luscious fruits and vegetables, but not a single article of food which was exactly similar to anything on earth. Every plant and flower and vegetable and animal has been so refined by ages of careful, scientific cultivation and breeding that the like of them on earth dwindled into pale, grey, characterless nothingness by comparison. At a second stop I met some highly cultivated people of the noble class and while in conversation we chanced to speak of helium. One of the older men had been there on a diplomatic mission several years before and spoke with regret of the conditions which seemed destined ever to keep these two countries at war. Helium, he said, rightly boasts the most beautiful women of Basum, and of all her treasures the wondrous daughter of Muskayake. Deja Torres, is the most exquisite flower. Why, he added, the people really worship the ground she walks upon and since her loss on that ill-starred expedition all helium has been draped in mourning. That our ruler should have attacked the disabled fleet as it was returning to helium was but another of his awful blunders which I fear will sooner or later compel Zodanga to elevate a wiser man to his place. Even now, Though our victorious armies are surrounding Helium, the people of Zodanga are voicing their displeasure, for the war is not a popular one, since it is not based on right or justice. Our forces took advantage of the absence of the principal fleet of Helium on their search for the princess, and so we have been able easily to reduce the city to a sorry plight. It is said she will fall within the next few passages of the further moon. And what? think you, may have been the fate of the princess, Deja Torres I asked as casually as possible. She is dead, he answered. This much was learned from a green warrior recently captured by our forces in the south. She escaped from the hordes of Thark with a strange creature of another world, only to fall into the hands of the Warhounds. Their thoughts were found wandering upon the sea bottom and evidences of a bloody conflict were discovered nearby. While this information was in no way reassuring, neither was it at all conclusive proof of the death of Deja Torres, and so I determined to make every effort possible to reach Helium as quickly as I could and carry to Tarduzma's such news of his granddaughter's possible whereabouts as lay in my power. Ten days after leaving the three two brothers I arrived at Zodanga. From the moment that I had come in contact with the red inhabitants of Mars I had noticed that Twola drew a great amount of unwelcome attention to me, since the huge brute belonged to a species which is never domesticated by the red men. Were one to stroll down Broadway with the Numidian lion at his heels the effect would be somewhat similar to that which I should have produced had I entered Zodango with Wula. The very thought of parting with the faithful fellow caused me so great regret and genuine sorrow that I put it off until just before we arrived at the city's gates. But then, finally, it became imperative that we separate. Had nothing further than my own safety or pleasure been at stake no argument could have prevailed upon me to turn away the one creature upon Barsoom that had never failed in a demonstration of affection and loyalty. But as I would willingly have offered my life in the service of her in search of whom I was about to challenge the unknown dangers of this, to me, mysterious city, 
I could not permit even Wola's life to threaten the success of my venture, much less his momentary happiness, for I doubted not he soon would forget me. And so I bade the poor beast an affectionate farewell, promising him, however, that if I came through my adventure in safety that in some way I should find the means to search him out. He seemed to understand me fully, and when I pointed back in the direction of Thark he turned sorrowfully away, nor could I bear to watch him go. But resolutely set my face towards Odanga and with a touch of heartsickness approached her frowning walls. The letter I bore from them gained me immediate entrance to the vast, walled city. It was still very early in the morning and the streets were practically deserted. The residences, raised high upon their metal columns, resembled huge rookeries, while the uprights themselves presented the appearance of steel tree trunks. The shops as a rule were not raised from the ground nor were their doors bolted or barred, since thievery is practically unknown upon Barsoom. Assassination is the ever-present fear of all Barsoomians, and for this reason alone their homes are raised high above the ground at night, or in times of danger. The Pta brothers had given me explicit directions for reaching the point of the city where I could find living accommodations and be near the offices of the government agents to whom they had given me letters. My way led to the central square or plaza, which is a characteristic of all Martian cities. The plaza of Zodanga covers a square mile and is bounded by the palaces of the Jeddak, the Jeds, and other members of the royalty and nobility of Zodanga, as well as by the principal public buildings, cafes, and shops. As I was crossing the great square lost in wonder and admiration of the magnificent architecture and the gorgeous scarlet vegetation which carpeted the broad lawns I discovered a red Martian walking briskly toward me from one of the avenues. He paid not the slightest attention to me, but as he came abreast I recognized him, and turning I placed my hand upon his shoulder, calling out, Kea! Kantoskan like lightning he wheeled and before I could so much as lower my hand the point of his long sword was at my breast. Who are you he growled, and then as a backward leap carried me fifty feet from his sword he dropped the point to the ground and exclaimed, laughing, I do not need a better reply, there is but one man upon Albasum who can bounce about like a rubber ball. By the mother of the further moon, John Carter. How came you here, and have you become a Dacene that you can change your color at will you gave me about half minute my friend, he continued, after I had briefly outlined my adventures since parting with him in the arena at Wahoon. Were my name and city known to the Zodangans I would shortly be sitting on the banks of the lost sea of Crest with my revered and departed ancestors. I am here in the interest of Tarduzmas, Jeddak of Helium to discover the whereabouts of Deja Torres, our princess. Sabthan, prince of Zodanga, has her hidden in the city and has fallen madly in love with her. His father, Thancosis, Jeddak of Zodanga, has made her voluntary marriage to his son the price of peace between our countries, but Tardushmas will not accede to the demands and has sent word that he and his people would rather look upon the dead face of their princess than see her Wednesday to any than her own choice, 
and that personally he would prefer being engulfed in the ashes of a lost and burning helium to joining the metal of his house with that of the Nkosis. His reply was the deadliest affront he could have put upon the Nkosis and the Zodangans, but his people love him the more for it and his strength in helium is greater today than ever. I have been here three days, continued Kondoskin, but I have not yet found where Deja Torres is imprisoned. Today I joined the Zodangan Navy as an air scout and I hope in this way to win the confidence of Sabdan, the prince, who is commander of this division of the navy, and thus learn the whereabouts of Deja Torres. I am glad that you are here, John Carter, for I know your loyalty to my princess and two of us working together should be able to accomplish much. The plaza was now commencing to fill with people going and coming upon the daily activities of their duties. The shops were opening and the cafes filling with early morning patrons. Kantoskin led me to one of these gorgeous eating places where we were served entirely by mechanical apparatus. No hand touched the food from the time it entered the building in its raw state until it emerged hot and delicious upon the tables before the guests in response to the touching of tiny buttons to indicate their desires. After our meal, Kantoskin took me with him to the headquarters of the Air Scout Squadron and introducing me to his superior asked that I be enrolled as a member of the Corps. In accordance with custom an examination was necessary, but Kantoskin had told me to have no fear on this score as he would attend to that part of the matter. He accomplished this by taking my order for examination to the examining officer and representing himself as John Carter. This ruse will be discovered later, he cheerfully explained, when they check out my weights, measurements, and other personal identification data, but it will be several months before this is done and our mission should be accomplished or have failed long before that time. The next few days were spent by Kondoskin in teaching me the intricacies of flying and of repairing the dainty little contrivances which the Martians use for this purpose. The body of the one-man aircraft is about 16 feet long, 2 feet wide and 3 inches thick, tapering to a point at each end. The driver sits on top of this plane upon a seat constructed over the small, noiseless radium engine which propels it. The medium of buoyancy is contained within the thin metal walls of the body and consists of the eighth Barsoomian ray, or ray of propulsion, as it may be termed in view of its properties. This ray, like the ninth ray, is unknown on Earth, but the Martians have discovered that is an inherent property of all light no matter from what source it emanates. They have learned that it is the solar eighth ray which propels the light of the sun to the various planets, and that it is the individual eighth ray of each planet which reflects, or propels the light thus obtained out into space once more. The solar eighth ray would be absorbed by the surface of Barsoom, but the Barsoomian eighth ray, which tends to propel light from Mars into space, is constantly streaming out from the planet constituting a force of repulsion of gravity which when confined is able to life enormous weights from the surface of the ground. 
It is this ray which has enabled them to so perfect aviation that battleships far outweighing anything known upon Earth sail as gracefully and lightly through the thin air of Barsoom as a toy balloon in the heavy atmosphere of Earth. During the early years of the discovery of this ray many strange accidents occurred before the Martians learned to measure and control the wonderful power they had found. In one instance, some 900 years before, the first great battleship to be built with eight three reservoirs was stored with too great a quantity of the rays and she had sailed up from helium with 500 officers and men, never to return. Her power of repulsion for the planet was so great that it had carried her far into space, where she can be seen today, by the aid of powerful telescopes, hurtling through the heavens 10,000 miles from Mars, a tiny satellite that will thus encircle Barsoom to the end of time. The fourth day after my arrival at Zodanga I made my first flight, and as a result of it I won a promotion which included quarters in the palace of the Nkosis. As I rose above the city I circled several times, as I had seen Kantos can do, and then throwing my engine into top speed I raced at terrific velocity toward the south following one of the great waterways which enters Odanga from that direction. I had traversed perhaps 200 miles in a little less than an hour when I descried far below me a party of three green warriors racing madly toward a small figure on foot which seemed to be trying to reach the confines of one of the walled fields. Dropping my machine rapidly toward them, and circling to the rear of the warriors, I soon saw that the object of their pursuit was a red Martian wearing the metal of the scout squadron to which I was attached. A short distance away lay his tiny flyer, surrounded by the tools with which he had evidently been occupied in repairing some damage when surprised by the green warriors. They were now almost upon him, their flying mounts charging down on the relatively puny figure at terrific speed while the warriors leaned low to the right, with their great metal shod spears. Each seemed striving to be the first to impale the poor Zodangan and in another moment his fate would have been sealed had it not been for my timely arrival. Driving my fleet aircraft at high speed directly behind the warriors I soon overtook the man without diminishing my speed I rammed the prow of my little flyer between the shoulders of the nearest. The impact sufficient to have torn through inches of solid steel, hurled the fellow's headless body into the air over the head of his throat, where it fell sprawling upon the moss. The mounts of the other two warriors turned squealing in terror, and bolted in opposite directions. Reducing my speed I circled and came to the ground at the feet of the astonished Zodangan. He was warm in his thanks for my timely aid and promised that my day's work would bring the reward it merited, for it was none other than a cousin of the Jeddak of Zodanga whose life I had saved. We wasted no time in talk as we knew that the warriors would surely return as soon as they had gained control of their mounts. Hastening to his damaged machine we were bending every effort to finish the needed repairs and had almost completed them when we saw the two green monsters returning at top speed from opposite sides of us. When they had approached within a hundred yards their thoughts again became unmanageable and absolutely refused to advance further toward the aircraft which had frightened them. 
the warriors finally dismounted and hobbling their animals advanced toward us on foot with drawn long swords. I advanced to meet the larger, telling the Zodangan to do the best he could with the other. Finishing my man with almost no effort, as he now from much practice become habitual with me, I hastened to return to my new acquaintance whom I found indeed in desperate straits. He was wounded and down with the huge foot of his antagonist upon his throat and the great long sword raised to deal the final thrust. With a bound I cleared the fifty feet intervening between us, and with outstretched point drove my sword completely through the body of the green warrior. His sword fell, harmless, to the ground and he sank limply upon the prostrate form of the Zodangan. A cursory examination of the latter revealed no mortal injuries and after a brief rest he asserted that he felt fit to attempt the return voyage. He would have to pilot his own craft, however, as these frail vessels are not intended to convey but a single person. Quickly completing the repairs we rose together into the still, cloudless Martian sky, and at great speed and without further mishap returned to Zodanga. As we neared the city we discovered a mighty concourse of civilians and troops assembled upon the plain before the city. The sky was black with naval vessels and private and public pleasure craft, flying long streamers of gay-colored silks, and banners and flags of odd and picturesque design. My companion signaled that I slow down, and running his machine close beside mine suggested that we approach and watch the ceremony which, he said, was for the purpose of conferring honors on individual officers and men for bravery, and other distinguished service. He then unfurled a little ensign which denoted that his craft bore a member of the royal family of Zodanga, and together we made our way through the maze of low-lying air vessels until we hung directly over the Jeddak of Zodanga and his staff. All were mounted upon the small domestic bullfoats of the Red Martians, and their trappings and ornamentation bore such a quantity of gorgeously coloured feathers that I could not but be struck with the startling resemblance the concourse bore to a band of the Red Indians of my own earth. One of the staff called the attention of the Nkosis to the presence of my companion above them and the ruler motioned for him to descend. As they waited for the troops to move into position facing the Jeddak the two talked earnestly together, the Jeddak and his staff occasionally glancing up at me. I could not hear their conversation and presently it ceased and all dismounted, as the last body of troops had wheeled into position before their emperor. A member of the staff advanced toward the troops, and calling the name of a soldier commanded him to advance. The officer then recited the nature of the heroic act which had won the approval of the Jeddak, and the latter advanced and placed a metal ornament upon the left arm of the lucky man. Ten men had been so decorated when the aide called out, John Carter, air scout never in my life had I been so surprised, but the habit of military discipline is strong within me and I dropped my little machine lightly to the ground and advanced on foot as I had seen the others do. As I halted before the officer, he addressed me in a voice audible to the entire assemblage of troops and spectators. In recognition, John Carter, he said, 
of your remarkable courage and skill in defending the person of the cousin of the Jeddak than Kossis and, single-handed, vanquishing three green warriors, it is the pleasure of our Jeddak to confer on you the mark of his esteem. Then Kossis then advanced toward me and placing an ornament upon me, said, My cousin has narrated the details of your wonderful achievement, which seems little short of miraculous and if you can so well defend the cousin of the Jeddak how much better could you defend the person of the Jeddak himself? You are therefore appointed a padwar of the guards and will be quartered in my palace hereafter. I thanked him, and at his direction joined the members of his staff. After the ceremony I returned my machine to its quarters on the roof of the barracks of the air scout squadron and with an orderly from the palace to guide me I reported to the officer in charge of the palace.